So this morning, I want us to flip over to the book of Mark. Turn over to the book of Mark, and I ask you to bear with me this morning. Um, there are there are four points within this message that need to come out this morning. So I ask you that you would uh, bear with me this morning as we uh, look at these first 20 verses uh, in the book of Mark. Uh, I think they are very profound for us this morning. They speak volumes of Jesus, who Jesus is. They speak volumes of who we are in light of Christ. Uh, So let us begin trying to get our minds around what it means to have sin in our lives and Sometimes we might not even recognize it and what it looks like in our lives. And I think there is nothing more damaging in the life of a human than to have sin that is allowed to fester. And once it festers and we become into this state of where it's like a sore that just oozes its contents on everyone around us and affects ourselves as well. And since the fall, we see this festering sin begin to affect everything in the world. It affects our reasoning. It affects our ability to think clearly. When God originally made man, it was to glorify and to worship Him. Even in our minds, reasoning and thinking and looking at the Bible in a holy context becomes distorted because sin has even affected the way that we think. Now, Richard Weaver wrote in a book entitled, Ideas Have Consequences. Think about that. Your ideas have consequences. Everything that we have in society today, every idea of God's being, every idea of human nature can be traced all the way back. into It's in some library now. Every idea can be traced throughout history. You know, we might think we had a new, a new idea, so to speak, in, in philosophy or, 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 or the reasoning we have in our lives for why God exists. And those things have already been thought out and it is in a library somewhere. But in his book entitled, Ideas Have Consequences, he, he writes this, and I think it's, it, it speaks to us this, today about how sin even affects the way that we think, even affects the way that we even read our scripture. Number one, it comes in, it's a barrier between us and God, and it doesn't allow us to have a right relationship with Him. So let's see, he wrote, There is no term proper to describe the condition in which he, that is man, is now left, unless it be as been malady. Now he is deep down into the abysm or abyss, and has nothing which he in and of himself to raise himself out of. There's nothing that you and I can do to raise ourselves out of sin in and of ourselves. Nothing that we can do. He goes on to write, he says, his life is practice without any theory. There is no way for you, there's no way for myself, There's no way for any other person to pull themselves up out of the miry clay of sin saved by Christ alone. The scriptures are so explicit in showing the faults and the downfalls of man and exalting the good nature of God through Jesus Christ that the scriptures speak volumes to us even in this little discourse this morning found in Mark. 
the soul and the body is so affected by sin, there is nothing else that we can do. There's nothing else I can do. There's nothing else you can do but to rely on God to relieve those sins in our lives. I heard a person tell me one time, he says, well, I don't sin. Of course, he was an unbeliever. The Bible primarily says that he who says he's without sin is a liar. John has moved him into the category of being a liar, which means he continually lies. And I asked him this question. I said, have you ever done anything wrong to your fellow man? Have you ever stolen? Have you ever lied? Have you ever cheated? He said, oh yeah. Well, I said, well, then you are guilty of sin. He might not believe there is a God, but part of God's law was that you love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Sin has distorted our way of thinking. Last week, we looked at even a surface vision of what we looked at the week before, the great storm. Last time we were in Mark, we looked at this. Great storm that had come up and Jesus was crossing over the Sea of Galilee and His disciples were fearful. So Jesus steps out and He calms the storm. So this idea that God, through Jesus Christ, we see Jesus Christ standing on the, on the edge of the ship, calming the storm. We see Jesus before Pilate. Last week we looked at the king. We looked at Pilate as he said, Behold the man, behold the king. And the past two weeks we have been looking at Mark describe Jesus as a man that is no mere man. Matter of fact, his disciples asked that question, what manner of men, man, is this? That even the seas and the storms obey Him. I mean, they knew something was in Jesus that was not ordinary. And He stopped the storm. He healed the sick. He forgave those people of sin. And primarily for us today, our faith is rested in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Today in Mark, we're going to look at a case of a demoniac. Hopefully, by the end of this message today, we can say this thing. I mean, we're, we're using the demoniac as a teaching tool for us this morning, which might seem an odd thing for us. But I want you to notice, when we get to that text, what he does. And I would say to you this morning, hopefully we can come out of this message with this in mind. And that is this, is when you are confronted with Jesus Christ, truly confronted, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, you seek to follow Him. You seek to do what He wants to do and follow Him wherever He goes. So I've broken this text up into four sections. Number one I want us to look at this morning that we are unable to break the chains of sin on our own. We are unable to break those chains of sin on our own. What I want us to see in the demoniac this morning is not so much that he is demon-possessed, but that this is a byproduct of the fall itself. This is a product of sin when it is allowed to fester. It affects the mind. It affects the thinking. It affects the way we act towards other people. So let's look at these first five verses and we're going to pull out this. That we are unable to break the chains of sin on our own. So starting with verse 1. He said, And there came over to the other side of the sea and to the country of Gardenas. And when he was come out of the ship immediately, there met him out of the tomb a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling amongst the tomb. And no man could bind him, not with chains, because that he had been often bound with fetters and chains, and chains had been plucked asunder by him, and the fetters broken in pieces, because no man could tame him. 
And always night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs crying and cutting himself with stones. So already, just by what I've already said about this being a vision of sin, you can already begin to see this, <laughs> to see this churning a little bit. This isn't so much about the demoniac as it is the effect that sin has. Jesus had really, he had passed to the other side and see a Galilee and he steps out which we would think it to be a city called Gerasa, which is a Gentile land. Those who weren't even in the Jewish or they weren't even Hebrew. Verse 2 shows us here, and we look at it, the ship stopped, Jesus steps out, and immediately or at once, this man with an unclean spirit comes to meet Jesus. Now we'll notice in verse 2 itself that he, when he jumps out of the boat, and then it goes on to say that he fell at his feet. Now, in a Hebrew tradition, they would say that a person that is dwelling or living in the tomb, and often people did do that, a person that was dwelling or living into a, in a tomb had come in contact with an unclean spirit. And they would say they had been possessed with an unclean spirit. Or that they seek the dead. There are people who want to talk with those that have passed on. We would call that a necromancer. Or he is one that starves himself. He goes into the tombs and he lodges in the tombs, they would say. And so the man was unclean because this demonic entity took over his body. We would see exorcists, uh, the, like the exorcist movie, uh, like a movie or Hollywood or something on TLC or Discovery that would depict somebody being overtaken. And we would think those, those type things, but I think this was, is, is a little bit more uh, biblical. Uh, in the account of the man that had been possessed here, insomuch that his body had been taken over to where he could not even control his very actions. And what Jesus is staring at, even though he knows what it is, is the very product of the fall itself. Back when Adam and Eve, back in the garden, rebelled against God. The very byproduct of this very thing, Jesus was looking at it. Because, quite frankly, even in the garden... And the normal state that which God created man, if he had flourished in that state, there would be no need to see a demoniac on the loose. There would have been no demoniac on the loose if man was in his state, original state, his natural state as man had been created by God. But verse 3 here shows that the man, he was dwelling in the tombs. So it appears that Jesus was in the right place at the right time. Either that or the man was in the right place at the right time. So regardless of how you look at it, there was a divine appointment. And remember, Jesus is a master teacher. Not only is He God, but He is also a master teacher. He is teaching His disciples something through even and through this example here. I would say to you this morning, you are in the right place at the right time for Christ to speak to you this morning. We come into His house, we hear the Word of God expounded on. You are at the right place at the right time. Now you might think you've gotten up and put your clothes on to come to meet with other believers. But believe it or not, you have a divine appointment to be exactly where you are this morning to hear the Word of God. He said, well I put my pants on this morning come to the house. By my own will, I come to church. And I would say to you, unless the Lord allowed you to even get up, you couldn't even step foot in that door. By divine appointment, you're sitting where you're at 
the right place at the right time to hear these scriptures expounded on and so that you and I can apply them in our lives. And how will we apply these scriptures in our lives? The scripture says that no man could bind him. The scripture says he couldn't even be bound by chains. Imagine being overtaken by bitterness or even rage. Hate. And nothing that you can do to make you snap out of it. Bitterness has consumed you. Unforgiveness has consumed and festered in your lives. And nothing anyone can say or do to you will ever make you leave those old habits. And we see a man who was able to snap the chains as if it is a string or a, even a twig. It is. The man had been put in chains and bound and nothing could have held him down. And that's a point I want us to remember. Nothing could restrain him. And he was also shown to have been cutting on himself. No mere man could tame this wild beast of a man. No mere, mere man. So Satan had empowered the man. And moreover, I think that this is a picture of the ugliness, the vileness of one of the many, many, many symptoms of sin when it is allowed to take form. Now, that's not to say that we have sin in our lives. We're going to run out of here like a banshee or go crazy. But I think in the long run, when it allows to fester in our lives, it brings all kinds of things. And I mentioned a few of them. Bitterness, unforgiveness, uh, hate even in our lives. Charles Matthews, in Against the Night, wrote of a boy, a 14-year-old boy by the name of Rob Anthony. I mean, uh, Rod Matthews. Now, Rod, he, he was the kind of guy who, who liked video games a little bit. He liked watching TV. He liked, he liked those things. But he, after a while, he grew cold of those. You know how you would say he became insensitive, kind of. Or he, he became bored with video games. And he, he became bored with TV. Nothing could really, nothing could really indulge, uh, indulge his boredom. But what really got Rod's mind was the aspect of death. Death was the only thing that aroused him or got him to perk up. And he had watched the Faces of Death movies uh, that are recorded which actually show real deaths as they occur. Some are real, some are fabricated. But the case is that he, he liked the aspect of death. And he wanted to see this up close and personal. And so he lures one of his friends out in the woods, takes a baseball bat and hammers his friend to death in the woods so he can see death up close and personal. And so the court trial comes along and Rod is sitting in the courts and he had a psychiatric evaluation and the man said he is not crazy. He is not out of his mind. Seems to me that he was. The man said that he is morally morally handicapped morally handicapped I don't think that the judge the lawyers I don't think the attorney saw what was the heart of the problem was that unless the Lord God intervened by Jesus Christ sin in his life took an extreme measure and that the fall exhibited itself in a most extreme way it made him seek death 
and want to see death. Now I'm not saying every one of us will, but I'm giving you one of the byproducts of what sin can do when it is allowed to fester in our lives. Now Jesus said that He came and that if you are in Christ Jesus, there is now no condemnation. For you and I who have trusted in Christ, there is now no condemnation in Him. Which means He forgives us our sins. Our nature has been changed. We want to look like Jesus Christ. And so we walk that way. But those who do not know Him are in danger even of this very thing. To have their mind and their vision distorted by sin to make them do some very, very crazy things. Now, if you want to look at the world around you, it doesn't take very long to open up a newspaper and see the bad state that the world is in. And we don't look at it and say, well, Satan did that. Satan made me do it. Satan only does what he is allowed to do and work in someone's life. So those who are with sin, who does not know even Christ, there can be an extreme on the horizon. You and I were probably just, just one step from doing something that we would have regretted our whole life had not Jesus Christ intervened. We are just by the grace of God one step away from doing something that even could have landed us in prison had not God intervened in our lives. Sin has distorted our reasoning and it has distorted our morality. And only deliverance by Jesus Christ can clear up those inclinations to sin. Change our nature. Sin, when it is played out, can have damaging effects on us, such as we see with Rod, such as we see with him. But I want us to know something. That the object of this story isn't the one who comes running out of the cave. The object of the story is not the demoniac who comes running, screaming like a banshee toward Jesus. It is Jesus that is the object of Mark's pen. It is Jesus that is the object. Number two, he is confronted by the Savior. And these three verses here says, And when, and when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshipped him. Now, you might have another translation that says that he fell at his feet. And cried with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God, the Most High? The Most High God, I assure thee by God, that thou torment me not. And when he said unto him, Come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. I want you to know that verse 5, look at verse 5, shows that the man saw Jesus and come out literally running to him. He didn't waste any time and he fell at his feet. Now you might have a version that says that he worshipped Jesus. More or less, the idea would be that he fell at Jesus' feet and cried to him to have mercy on him. For I think within that vision, the, the unclean spirit saw Jesus and knew the power that he had over him. He knew the power. I think something again can be said for recognizing the power of Christ. Recognizing that even, in, if, even when I say to you and I the name Jesus Christ this morning, even when I say the name Jesus to you this morning, there is power in that name. There is power in the name Jesus Christ. Because underlining, you th you're thinking of the Jesus that washed away your sins. You're thinking of Jesus, the one, indeed, that we see in this story, who takes the sin away. There's power in the name of Jesus Christ. Imagine this. Imagine following an example of a man with an unclean spirit. I mean, would I tell you this morning to follow the example of a man with an unclean spirit? Maybe not his intentions, but that he fell at Jesus' feet. He fell at Jesus' feet. 
And your King James would say that he worshipped him. But I think, even by context to some degree, that he didn't worship him to save him, but worshipped in that he recognized the power of Jesus. That Jesus could have annihilated this spirit if he so chose to do so. The fact remains, if we have not Christ as our Lord, we are just as unclean as the man who knelt at the feet of Jesus. We are just as unclean. It is as if the demon here, as we see it, he cried with a loud voice. It is like he says this, I command you in the name of God not to torture me. So in a way we think, who does this unclean spirit think that he's talking to? I think in a way he is appealing to the nature of God. God is long-suffering, but he is long-suffering to you and I. He is full of love and mercy, but he is full of love and mercy to you and I. This makes me, draws my mind to Philippians. And in Philippians, the verse reads, And that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, of things in heaven, and things in earth, and the things under the earth. It is the sheer power that this unclean spirit recognizes in Jesus that drove him to his knees. He knew he had the power to cast him into utter darkness. He had the power to cast him into oblivion. So it is like this. The, the, the literal rendering of this is that the way that it's written in the original language is this. The demon comes crying out and falls at the feet of Jesus and it is literally like Jesus is repeatedly saying that to drive him out. Be gone. He is literally repeating, come out of the man, the unclean spirit. Come out of the man, the unclean spirit. Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And commotion seems and chaos seems to be coming out of this because at the same time the demon is saying repeatedly repeatedly what have I to do with thee Jesus thou son of the most high God so these things are, are going on and Jesus is rebuking this unclean spirit and towards the end of the British novelist's life H.G. Wells and H.G. Wells wrote World of Worlds. He wrote The Time Machine. And H.G. Wells is what you would call a materialist naturalist. Uh, in another way of saying that he was an atheist. He taught that when you die, you go back to the earth and that's all there is. There's no afterlife. There's no seeing Jesus. There's no heaven to him. H.G. Wells would have taught that. And that's what H.G. Wells believed. And toward the end of his life, he grew despairing towards human nature. And he was so worried about the despairing state of, of the human race that one evening at dinner, Wells had sat down, H.G. Wells sat down, uh, and after dinner he laid out his plans for the future. Now he had already kind of written Time Machine, so he, he kind of already had his future idea about, about what humankind would be in the future. He wrote this, he says, Mankind has failed because evolution failed to produce in us the right kind of brain. Therefore, Wells claimed, we will destroy ourselves. We will die out as a species and revert to the mud and slime from which we rose. 
we shall deserve our fate. He added, he said, that the human race had only 1,000 years more to survive. Now, he may have been one that did not believe in God, but I think that at least here, there is some truth that transcends. That he knew that something was not quite right with us as human beings. Something is out of place. Something is a void. Anything that is, in, there is anything that is good within us. It is because God has made us in His image. And that is just residual goodness that we get from God. He knew that something was wrong with human beings. But see, that's the beauty of the gospel. Is that it offers us and gives us a remedy. It gives us a way out. You can see the utter, the utter despair and the helplessness that one who does not believe in God has no answer for their questions. They have no answer, for he seemed despairing of the human nature. But we indeed trust in Christ as our remedy. One who comes onto the scene. One who makes it to where we don't have to worry anymore about our sinful state. We believe in Christ and we know that heaven one day will be our home. Our answer is found in Scripture. Our answer is found in the Word of God as the Holy Spirit illumines us to understand this. And I say to you this morning, after this second point, confronted by the Savior, thank God for Christ. Thank God for Christ that somehow brings our reasoning and thinking and the way we see God back into line somewhat. To where we aren't just some primordial goo and ooze that has no answer. We're not a mistake. We've been created in the image of God. We've been created in His image and likeness. There's complexity with this body that only a Creator can do. But it distorts our vision and thinking. And three, we see the remedy revealed. This remedy is revealed. And verse 9 through 14 says, and He asked him, He says, What is thy name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he besought him much that he would not send them away out of the country. Now there was nigh unto the mountains a great herd of sheep feeding. And the angels besought him, saying, Send us unto the swine that we may enter into them. Forthwith Jesus gave them leave, and the unclean spirit went out and entered into the swine. And the herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea. There were about 2,000. And they were choked in the sea. And they that fed the swine fled and told it to the city and in the country and they went out to see what was done. So Jesus asked the demon, he says, what is your name? And he says, I am legion. I am many. It's not necessarily a name primarily, but the idea of we are many. It tells us in the text, he says, we are, we are, we are many. And a Roman legion would consist of somewhere around four to 6,000 soldiers, depending on what time frame and what area you were in? Somewhere between four to 6,000. But I think it would do us no good this morning to try to match up the number of, of legions in an army to the number of swine. That's not the point. That's not the point this morning. The point is not to get sidetracked on the, on the swine and the, the demons, but to see the power that Jesus has. It's so easy to try to get into the details, and the details are important. Yes, they are for study. But this morning, 
I want us to look at that Jesus even had the power over the demon to drive him out. He still has power over them, even when he begged them. Even when he begged Jesus. The key is still Jesus' power over them. There is an indication here that they are in a Gentile land. Was he swine? We know for the Hebrew that swine would be an unclean animal. Not only that, that when we see Jesus drive the swine, later on we'll see these people didn't even care that Jesus had performed a miracle. They were more concerned with their swine and their livestock than they were about the man being free from his sin, his unclean spirit that was in here. Maybe Jesus was showing his power over the spirit world. Maybe it was then that the unclean legions went into the water and somehow were annihilated. Those details are not given to us in scriptures. But it's so easy to get off the point sometimes. And the point is this, that Jesus was in total control. Jesus was in total control. Just like he controlled the sea, the disciples just saw, he is in control over even the spirit realm. There is an article called Later But Lost of Satan. He once had a, a conference in order to devise some effective method to harm God's work on earth. How are we going to get in the church and really mix things up? How are we going to get in and, and get our hands and destroy the work of the Lord? And the article goes, Let us go down and persuade men that there is no God. However, this was rejected because the majority of the demons and by the archangel Satan who stated that it was impossible for any intelligent man to not believe in the existence of God. Not to believe in the existence of God. Any, any smart man with the reasoning capabilities would come to the conclusion that there must be at least a higher power at God. And how could they persuade men of the of the non-existence of God when they themselves believe there is a God. Another demon proposed that they should tell the people that Jesus Christ never really existed. And that is a new trend that is actually surfacing today. That's what we call novices who have no study, who have said that there is no historical Jesus, but in fact there is. This also was rejected since historical facts are historical facts. And Jesus, as a historical figure, could not be denied. And another demon come forth and he suggested that they persuade everyone that death ended it all and they should not worry about the life after death. And those go hand in hand with those who believe that there is no God. This is all there is. When you die, there's no afterlife. You have nothing to worry about. But this was also rejected because man can conclude that God must be a fool to have created man for this earth only. For this earth only. Finally, the most intelligent of the demons got up and said, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll go down and tell everyone to believe there is a God. Believe in God, it's okay. And belief in Jesus Christ saves you. And it does. But you can get, by just professing faith, and go on living in sin as you used to. Go down, profess as God, profess as Jesus, but live like you don't believe it. Live in the old way and use grace as a crutch. And immediately, this proposal was unanimously acclaimed. And ever since, the demons 
Satan's angels and agents have been getting people in the church to believe that very thing. For you and I this morning, it means that sin festers in our lives and gets us to say, well, I'm born again so I can live any old way I want and rely on grace as a crutch. That's what sin would look like for you and I this morning. Death has taken, that has taken a reality for some people in the church that they are born again and they can just sin as they want. God's grace will cover them. And so the enemy here implants this in. This man with the unclean spirit, he could not have gone on much longer. He couldn't have gone on much longer in the land of the living in his, in his present state. And I would suggest to you this morning that we cannot thrive as Christians if we have sin in our lives. We cannot prosper if we have sin in our lives. We can't walk as God would want us to walk Exhibiting to the world, being a light to the nations for Jesus Christ, where there is sin in our lives. The Bible also says that our righteousness is as filthy rags. So nobody is excluded from this. From the unbeliever who is still dead in their sins, they're not spiritually sick. They're spiritually dead. Just as we were spiritually dead who, who at one time did not even know Christ. We're not spiritually sick. We were spiritually dead in sin. We had no way of reaching God on our own. And I think that is very primarily exclusive to this text is that there's no way in ourselves to break the bonds of sin on our own. And that is one of the main ideas we see in this text. But my last point is this. Once we have been saved, we follow Christ. Once you have been saved by the grace of God, by faith, we follow Jesus Christ. And remember there was two things that I said that the demon could teach us this morning. The unclean spirit. It's kind of funny that we say that, but we see him falling on his knees. Although his direction towards worship wasn't as it should be, but we should follow and fall on our knees before Christ and worship him. But number two, the example that we see from when the unclean spirit is cast out is monumental for us this morning. Because it says, once you have encountered Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, you seek to do just like this unclean man and climb in the boat with Jesus. You seek to follow Him wherever He goes. So let's look at these scriptures to finish it up. And there came to Jesus and see Him that was possessed with the devil and had legion, sitting and clothed and in His right mind. And they saw Him and they beheld to Him that was possessed with the devil. And also concerning the swine. And they began to pray him to depart out of their coasts. And when he had come into the ship, he had been possessed with the devil. He prayed him that he might be with him. Now howbeit Jesus suffered him not, but he said unto him, Go home to thy friends and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee. And hath had compassion on thee. And he departed and began to publish in Decapolis and how great things Jesus had done for him and all the men did marvel. I want you to notice that those that saw this told them how it befell him that was possessed. And how is it when we have seen the Lord move? There's tons of application in this scripture. How is it that when we see the Lord do something for us and for others that we 
seem to be as if we can't tell the world about what Jesus did for us. How is it that we cannot testify the goodness of God when the Lord has come by and has, number one, forgive us of our sins? How is it that we cannot tell the world what Jesus done? And we see the man immediately after he was, as he was cleansed by Christ, which was a which the unclean was a byproduct of the fall and sin. And Jesus had wiped the sin away, so to speak, and yet the man seek to climb in the boat with Jesus. He wanted to follow Jesus. How is it that when we see God do things for us through Christ that we have a hard time following Him? We have a hard time telling the world of the goodness of God. To be sure we're not ashamed of the goodness of God. To be sure we're not ashamed of the gospel. To be assured we're not ashamed when, when the Lord has healed us and we can say, well, I know for sure that God has touched me and has healed me. The man has something to rejoice about. And not only that, Jesus later on in Matthew 28 says, Go into all the earth, make disciples of all nations. He tells the man here who wished to climb into the boat with Jesus to do that very thing. He says, Go to your family. Tell them the good things that, you, that the Lord has done. Tell them what has, has happened here. Not only that, we see a direct contrast. Because we see the people of the city so worried about their swine and what Jesus had done through their swine. How He ran them into the, into the sea there, into the lake. They were more worried about their swine than they were worried about Jesus and the miracle that Jesus had performed. The priorities were out of order. Priorities, indeed, were out of order. The philosopher Kierkegaard once said, and I looked around and nobody was laughing. I went into the church and sat on a velvet pew. I watched as the sun came shining through the stained glass window. The minister, dressed in a velvet robe and opened the golden gilded Bible, marked it with a silk bookmark and said, If any man be my disciple... We know that Jesus told the man to go. That's what it, in essence, is to be a disciple. The man would be my disciple, and Jesus said, let him deny himself, take up the cross, and sell what he has, give it to the poor, and follow me. There are a number of things we'll learn from this episode that we see in these scriptures. Know that Jesus wants to cleanse you from your sin. And that sin puts a wall between you and God. For us Christians, it, it, it delays, it, it hinders our communion with God. It hinders us for having a vibrant relationship with our Lord and Savior. For those who do not know Him, we are dead in our sins. And unless the Lord Jesus comes by by His Holy Spirit and illumines that within you, it draws you to Him, you will be in your sin. And so I would say by the Word of God has gone forward this morning that the Lord would do that very thing, begin to invade your life. If you do not know Him this morning as your Lord and Savior, you can't really say, I have been born again. I pray that the Lord God by His Holy Spirit will invade your life. They're like a drill and a piece of hot butter. It will begin to dig in and so churn your life that you cannot escape God's calling. My prayer would be that for you this morning. Jesus wants to cleanse you from your sin. He wants to cleanse those sins. And even the unclean spirit here saw the power of Christ. 
And that when one is cleansed by Christ, they seek to follow Him. So I will put these up. We are not able to break the chains of sin on our own. That is impossible. Christ alone. We are confronted by the Savior. We are confronted with our sins. Every one of us are confronted with our sins. Whether we are in Christ or whether we are not, we are all confronted with sins. It depends on what side of the cross you are on. What side of the cross you stand on. You are in Him or you are not. We all are affected by sin one way or another. Number three, the remedy is revealed. Jesus Christ is the only one who casts out the unclean spirit. He's the only one who extinguishes sin. Number three, number four, once we have been saved, once we have committed ourselves to Jesus Christ, we serve Him. Now, however that looks in your life will depend on your walk with Jesus. will depend on how close you walk with Him to be able to be sensitive when the Spirit tells you to do a thing for the Lord. As you're reading the Word, you can see how a person got up and went out to the city and witnessed. And maybe that will illumine in your mind and say, well, Lord, I need to go out into the city and witness. I want you to notice this morning that we all have been affected by sin. Even the reasoning and the morality has been affected by sin. And it only takes Jesus Christ alone to extinguish sin in our lives and move us to follow Him. Let us pray. Father, we do thank You for Your, your wonderful Word this morning. I pray, Lord God, that You will allow these words that have gone forth. I know there were, there were many verses, but I do, I, I'm grateful, Lord Father, that You have given us a written Word that we can expound upon and learn from. We can learn Your ways. I ask You this morning, Lord, if there's one in here who has sin in their lives, Father, only you know, and only they know it, that you will reveal it to them, that they can take care of it before they leave. I ask you this morning, Lord Father, that the Lord Jesus will invade their lives. These aren't times to be lackadaisical or, or, or have a play date in church. We ask you, we mean business when we come to the house of the Lord. We ask you, Lord Father, that you will indeed invade our lives by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. And as we sing this song, I just want you to know that anytime, even during the service or the singing or the preaching of the Word of God, that this altar is open. We have, a, we have an open altar policy, so to speak. If you feel like you need to come and lay your face before the Lord, the altar is always open. And you know what? It doesn't matter if people think what sin do they have. Oh, look at them, they're going down forward. What sin do they have in their lives? The fact is, if they're saying that, they need to come down there with you. There's something wrong with them too. I want us to sing this this morning. If there's anything you want to lay before the Lord on the altar this morning, you've heard the message, go forward. I'm not one to sit here and beg. It's the Holy Spirit's, it's the Holy Spirit's job to draw one to Him. And so this 